Should we, should we welcome people? Welcome people back. I think so. I think it's been a while. And I think this episode deserves a little bit of like uh, setting the stage of what we're doing today. <laughs> One, because it's been a really long time. But two, uh, the reason this is, this should have been released a while ago, but we lost some of the audio. So we are re-recording an episode I think it's important because we're probably going to reference the first one or like, you know, say something like when we recorded it the first time, you said this or something like that. So that's that's the context for it. Uh, right. Yeah. And future episodes will say, you know, if we didn't re-record this, we'd be talking about, oh, that time we did Bell's Theorem. And exactly. You wouldn't you wouldn't know what we were talking about. So. Yeah, we had to get this one re-recorded before we could release the next one. So, yeah, so this this episode, what I'd like to talk about today is uh, Bell's Theorem. And I did listen back to my side of the recording that was um, able to be listened to. Um, we didn't have yours, but um, I, it was interesting to listen back because <laughs> I started it by saying, I've studied this like six times in my life, Bell's Theorem. And every time I study it and try and figure it out, I'm like, yep, nailed it, got it. And then I completely forget it like the next day. And I I felt pretty prepared in our last recording. Like I, I understood it really well. But then I went back because I'm like, oh, we're going to re-record Bell's Theorem. I should like refresh my notes. I'm like, I don't remember at all what the point of Bell's Theorem is again, like after even preparing it. So... I don't know. There's something like oil and water with my brain and Bell's theorem that like the point of it just doesn't stick. And I, I'm going to say it again. I think I got it this time, but you know, ask me tomorrow and it, it might just be gone. So yeah, I, I think, don't know how you feel about Bell's theorem. <laughs> I, I, I tried to remember exactly like I, like this time looking at it when I went back to like, look at notes and stuff, I thought, okay, I kind of remember some of it from last time. And I, I knew the things to Google and like refresh my memory. Whereas like the last time I was kind of just limited to only Bell's theorem and then had to work my way from there. Um, so like it, yeah, it didn't fully stick with me either. I think it's cause it's, it's kind of a weird, uh, concept that like gets viewed from a lot of different angles. Right. And, and talked about in different ways. And so like you could read one, one topic that's talking about it from one point of view and then you read someone else and they kind of tackle it from a different point of view. So trying to make a coherent picture, I think is a little difficult with Bell's theorem. And that's, I mean, I'm going to say, I hope to do that today, but who knows how well it's going to come across. But um, I think I've distilled it even better from the last time we recorded. Uh, I think I have a better understanding of the main point of it and I can, I can um, separate the, the, ideas that get conflated around Bell's theorem and make it, I think, a little more concrete in the historical context of where it comes from. So that's what I hope to do today. Uh, last time we did get wrapped up in the weeds of like spin operators and like projections with like up and downs and left and rights, and it got pretty difficult to listen to. So I'm going to try and make a conscious effort to avoid that unless you, unless you take us there and I'll, I'll like try and keep us on track <laughs> and remember, remember where we're headed. Um, yeah, but I, I don't, I don't want to get into the math too much and the math I don't think is super interesting. Um, I think the philosophical implications are pretty much the, the meat of Bell's theorem. Yeah. I, I, I kind of, you know, I read, uh, actually I just read Bell's paper mm -hmm. and like reading that was not very interesting or very enlightening or anything like that. Yeah, I agree. Um, 
I mean, it it is, but I think it takes a filter to like get through what he's actually saying. Yeah, yeah. I had to like reference other sources to then like, because his paper is like, here's a bunch of math. Mm-hmm. And like to derive the implications from it, like I don't have that quantum like uh, confidence right. to just like, What's- oh yeah, I get it. What's he's making really, 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 really subtle arguments in in math, and it's not it's not that the math is hard, but you're you're just constantly asking like, why did you have to go this route to make that such small point? Like, that's that's where I always get tripped up in the the derivations and like leading to the inequalities. It's like there's such subtle arguments um, that just it makes it really difficult to follow and like yeah, wrap your head around not only the math but just like the the philosophical implications of the math yeah uh i what i ended up doing was there was a paper by um oh gosh what's his name um david merman and david Mm -hmm. merman that was fairly decent on the topic um right it kind of like gave me a you know bouncing between that and bell's uh paper and then just reading like the wikipedia pages i was kind of able to piece things together right you know a pretty decent amount um yeah i mean just to kind of tease what you guys are going to listen to we've been talking about what we're going to talk about for a while but uh just you know some teasers is like some people have i think it was the was it not only it was berkeley or lawrence but it's been quoted bell's paper as like the greatest scientific like finding of the 20th century um you know it has a lot of uh pretty cool implications for such a small like the the actual paper is Mm -hmm. one two three four five five pages plus references like right it's a pretty short paper um so it, it, it but it has like a lot of deep meaning to it exactly yeah and the 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 you know not the best textbook on it, but a textbook that I can read and follow decently, Griffith's Quantum. It talks about Bell's theorem, I think, in the appendix, because it's kind of like an add-on to the the book, not required for the rest of the book to understand it. And I think I think it's a half a page. Maybe it's two pages at the most in, in that textbook. And that's like the proof of Bell's inequality. So it's not that hard, but again, it's just these subtle little arguments and people have since distilled it quite a bit into like the essence of what he was actually getting at. And so I think we benefit from that in that there's been a filter of time to help us kind of clarify what's going on there. And the original paper, like you said, it's five pages, but it's got a lot of math. And if I remember correctly, the math isn't even like the quantum part of it isn't difficult. The math is pretty straightforward in the quantum part. But then when he gets into the, we'll talk about uh, hidden variables, when he goes through that math, I think it's pretty rough. Like, it, it's hard to follow what he's talking about. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's very much just like, here's an equation, here's an equation, here's an equation. Let's mm-hmm. match these equations together uh, without a whole lot of, like, physics in it. Right. You know, he doesn't say, like, okay, here's what the meaning of our interpretation of this question. Because he's not writing for someone like me who's reading right. it, you know, he's writing to other, you know, uh, doctors of physics. I'm glad you brought up David Merman because I think he, he plays a big role in my understanding in that I've read some of his papers and a lot of, a lot of the YouTube videos and the pop science, um, interpretations or explanations of Bell's theorem goes 
along with Merman's explanation of it. And he really distilled it in a really simple way. And he, I mean, I think he completely deviates from what Bell actually did in uh, Merman's thought thought experiment. It's, it's a totally different setup and it's a lot more straightforward and easy and kind of just like counting as opposed to Bell's, which is integrals over density functions of hidden variables. You know, I don't know. It's, it's a lot simpler when you're just counting possibilities Right. And so that's, that's Merman's take on it. And that, that was one part of the confusion. And I, I said it in the last recording and I want to say it here again, in particular, the, a big part of my confusion early on, or like going through, I don't know, undergrad and grad school and stuff and, and learning this and trying to watch other YouTube videos and pop science articles about it. They don't say that they're doing the Merman version of the experiment because I would try and derive the Bell's theorem from Bell's version. And then watching pop science YouTube videos, they all do the Merman one, which is simpler, a lot simpler. And like I said, it's just straight counting. Sometimes people do the like um, malice law of like a, 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 a particle going through a polarizer, something like that. And that's where they drive the angles. And that's, that's what Bell did. But then the Merman one is just, here are three possibilities and they're all, you know, equally spaced around a unit circle and you just count what's up and what's down. And there's only so many possibilities. If there are hidden variables, you get one answer. If there aren't, you get a different answer. Great. And that's, yeah, that's, so that, that's, that's going to be interesting to talk about because I kind of have a vague understanding of both Bell and Merman, but I don't feel like I have a solid of either. So I'm going to learn something. Cool. So let's 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 get into the history of where this comes from. Yeah, I was going to say, should we start with uh, like EPR or uh, exactly uh, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle? Well, yeah, we can go back to Heisenberg. Um, let, let's start with EPR and explain why EPR came about. So EPR stands for Einstein, Podolsky, and Rosen, who wrote a paper in 1935, um, and it's the Einstein and then two other physicists, Podolsky and Rosen. But they were trying to highlight an issue with quantum mechanics, which was, you know, in its, I don't know, not teenage years. But, you know, if you, if you say quantum started in 1905 and then they're now in 1935, it's 30 years old. And it's pretty well established. And like, you know, the 20s really helped solidify the math behind it, the, the foundations of quantum mechanics. And so they've, they've had about 10 years of solid math backing up quantum mechanics and people were on board. Einstein, Podolsky, and Rosen had conversations about problems with it, namely the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, which has, uh, in one version, you can talk about position and momentum not able to be uh, measured to infinite precision in an experiment. So there's always going to be some uncertainty um, when trying to simultaneously measure position of something and the momentum of something. Not super important, the details of that, but that's the foundational like issue that they're trying to wrap their heads around. Yeah. Like maybe I, maybe I just want to add that, you know, if there's the technical term is two non, you know, commuting operators, but that that aside, there's particular things that you can measure that you can actually know both at the same time. And mm-hmm. there's other things that you can't and position and momentum are two of the things that like you can't know both exactly at the same time. And there's other options out there too, as, as we'll get to. Right. And so what EPR did in their paper, and I, I just want to put this side note in, uh, I read something that, uh, so Einstein didn't technically write anything in that paper. It was mostly Podolsky, I believe the P part of EPR. 
Um, and there's like an English typo in the title and they say it's Podolsky being Russian. He didn't speak fluent English or, you know, his English wasn't, uh, perfect. And so he had a little, little hiccup in the title. Anyway, um, Einstein has said that his views weren't actually captured perfectly in that paper. There were still issues with the philosophy of the paper that he wished he could iron out, but it was published with his name on it. Um, you know, it captured well enough for him to be okay with it to be published. But, um, I think that adds to the confusion in that we don't even get what Einstein was really frustrated with in quantum mechanics in the paper that everyone's talking about. Uh, Apparently there's a lot of like back and forth between him and Born. Einstein and Born that you, mm-hmm. that you can read that he tries to kind of explain uh, his problems further and uh, right. from kind of what I've read I haven't read them their actual letters back and forth but just like kind of about their letters back and forth Born got kind of like annoyed with uh, with Einstein just like he couldn't explain it well enough <laughs> Einstein couldn't explain it well enough to Born no no yeah Born couldn't explain it well enough oh. to Einstein to get him to like understand like why Einstein shouldn't have problems. Right. So let, let's get the historical context. A lot of people say that the issue that Einstein had with quantum mechanics was that um, the God doesn't play dice, right? Like that's kind of a pull quote that people often use. I think historians like scientific historians and people who look into this agree that Einstein was fine with that. He didn't really care that that like there was a probabilistic nature to quantum mechanics. That's fine. What he really didn't like was what the other quote that comes from this whole discussion, which I think was in a letter to Bourne where he wrote, he didn't like the, the spooky actions at a distance. That's what he didn't like. And it wasn't that he was nervous that, um, special relativity was at risk of going down the tube because all of a sudden something can travel faster than light. Um, he, he understood this wasn't actually information being traveling, uh, being sent across huge distances, which we'll talk about what I'm talking about in a second. But that, that quote, the spooky actions at a distance, that was the fundamental issue he had with what quantum mechanics was saying. It's like, there's some influence that's happening over huge distances. You can't send a signal with it. So it doesn't break special relativity, but that's what his big problem was. So the, the, the EPR, I don't even want to say the word paradox because I don't know that it is a paradox, but what they, they try to outline in the paper was a, a, an experimental setup and it's extremely elaborate and complicated, but essentially they have two systems that start far apart from each other, come together, interact, like collide or something, and then separate again. So, I mean, in the simplest terms, two baseballs far apart colliding and then separating space, something like that, something straightforward. And then what they said was measure the position and the momentum of one of the systems. And because you somehow you knew the initial conditions, you know that momentum has to be conserved. You can deduce what the position and momentum of the other system is without ever measuring it. Right. That's, that's, yeah, that's pretty straightforward. Like with baseballs, you could do that and it's not hard. And you could, you know, we do actually do that in like basic physics classes. You have little air tracks and the carts collide and you use conservational momentum and energy to figure out, um, speeds of the other carts, stuff like that. Right. Yeah. All well and good in classical mechanics. What the issue they had was in quantum mechanics, the position and momentum aren't well defined but by measuring one system, you can get a well-defined uh, position and momentum of the other system simultaneously. And so they said there's some con- conflict. And that's that was at odds with the uncertainty principle. And so they said, quantum mechanics says there has to be an uncertainty, but just, and this is, 
a little bit of a, a misrepresentation and simplification of what they thought, but EPR was saying there, the position and momentum of an, of a system has to be measurable, but also independent of the measurement, meaning it has to exist before the measurement happens. Like that's just, they kind of were just like, it's just logical. Like that's clearly that's the case, right? right? Yeah. So let me see if I can like say this in a, in a different way slightly. Is that like, sure. Okay. So if you measure, if you have these two things interact and then they separate and you can measure the, you know, um, momentum of, you know, let's say you have system one and system two, you can measure the momentum of system two and then therefore deduce the momentum of system one. Mm-hmm. But then it, it's like you you know both of those things instantaneously. That well, and then additionally, like you can also like okay. So one of the th- maybe maybe I'm mixing things up here because there's you can measure the momentum of system two and know what system one was, and you can also measure the position of system one and know the position of system two. And therefore, right. you know all the, everything about the system exactly. Right. Okay, well, okay, yeah, let, let, I'll let you take it. So, there's a, a physicist named Tim Modlin. Have you heard of him? No. Have you heard his name? No. I recognized his name. I don't know where I know it from, but I watched a YouTube video of his. It's a talk that he gave somewhere. Um, and he he kind of explained it that you don't even need to go into the uncertainty principle. Like, quantum mechanics, just you can talk about positions. And, like, if you measure the position of system one, you immediately know the position of system two, even though quantum mechanics might have a wave function of a distribution of positions for um, system two, right? Yeah. So right there, you don't even need to go into momentum is his point. Like they could have just stuck with position, but maybe the argument wouldn't have been as elegant. I don't know. So, so, so is okay. The, is the problem here that if you measure system one's position mm-hmm. and then you instantaneously know uh, position or system two's position. And that's the, the spooky action. Exactly. Like the system two had its own wave function that had a distribution of positions where it could have been, but by measuring system one, you immediately collapse the wave function of system two done. You don't even need to go into momentum or uncertainty principle. Um, that's one way to think of it. And that's, that's again, that's not what EPR said. They did go into the uncertainty principle. Like you were saying, like cross measuring position of one, momentum of two, you know, the opposites. Right. And so you, you can break, um, you can break the uncertainty principle that way, but you don't have to go that complicated. Um, yes. And so, so the thing yeah. Einstein didn't like is just that there's, you, you can, you, okay. So if you measure system one's position, then you instantly know position two. So either, mm-hmm. either that, that way function collapsed at this exact same moment, or it already had a definite position right like it was pre-programmed like some dna inscribed in a particle or a you know system doesn't matter what it is um that the second the particle came into existence when you make the measurement of where is system two it's already known by the particle or sorry by the system the answer to that measurement it's it's prescribed that's and we just don't know it and quantum mechanics can't know it it's quantum mechanics says it's unknowable einstein was saying it must be just a hidden thing that we can't our technology can't probe yet and we don't have an explanation for it but he's like just call it a hidden variable i don't even know if he used the word hidden variable that might be another um distillation through time but 
you know, there is something we don't know, we can't know, but there's something there. Right. There must be right. because there there has to be, and this this is what gets at the heart of the philosophy of it. There has to be an element of reality to the position of an object at a given time, because it, he was saying everything must have an answer to these questions ready to go whenever you ask them. Right. Yeah, I, Th- that's, I think that's the crux. I think maybe to make this a little more concrete that we, we let's move forward in time to like uh, the Bohm or bell version of this. If, if let's, if you're ready, let's, let's highlight the, the three kind of assumptions that EPR made, and then we'll see how bell knocked them down. Um, and uh, there's lots of different ways to look at this. And then we'll get into what you're saying exactly of how we move past the systems of colliding and position momentum and stuff and get into what most people think of as the, the, um, EPR paradox and, and bells, um, theorem yeah. regarding that. Yeah. I guess the thing I wanted to like make a little more concrete is it seems weird to like, if you don't have any, you know, experience with quantum mechanics, it seems intuitive to say that you're going to know what the position is at a different, you know, based on the interaction of the two, just because like you said, like with baseballs, we know that that, that works. Mm-hmm. So, right. you, you know, in order to like maybe make it a little more mystical until we talk about it is that there's, there's some property of these particles that we can't know both of at the same time. It doesn't have to be position or momentum. It could be something else. Right. And we, we, it's, you know, quantum mechanics says we can't know both of those things. And Einstein's proposing, well, if we measure one, then we automatically know the other. And either, so either, either it was already going to be that way ahead of time, or there's a spooky action at a distance. And he didn't like that. Right. So let me, let me, read the definition that they put in the paper in the epr paper of reality and this is what the crux of the whole thing is and this is why it touches philosophy because they get at the heart of what is real and that's deeply it's deeper than physics i think right it's just like what what does reality mean and whenever anyone talks about you know stupid um stoner questions in physics they're always like well what is real you know they get to that point but this is this is what they were doing. Right. <laughs> so they, they tried. So what they did in the paper was try to define reality, and then they showed how quantum mechanics doesn't fit that definition. And so there must be something else to get systems real properties. So their definition: if a property can be predicted one hundred percent without disturbing it, then it is real. And that's a paraphrase. They used more words than that, but that's the, that captured most of what was said and people argue about the the choice of the language the word disturbing what does that mean but if a property can be predicted 100 percent without disturbing then it is real so a property that can be known without making a measurement so i think of this as the 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 freshman physics momentum collision carts experiment you can predict with 100 percent certainty following classical mechanics what the position of cart two is after it collides with cart one, something like that. Right. Right. The problem is in quantum mechanics, there is no 100% certainty. You're always left with the probability distribution. You're always stuck with some uncertainty. That's what quantum mechanics says. So that's the crux of the issue. Quantum mechanics isn't enough to give us a physical reality based on their definition of reality. 
Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah. Like that's a straight quote from their paper. I mean, that's not exactly word for word quote, but property can be predicted 100%. It's real. So in kind of distilling EPR, Bell got to the point, and I'm jumping ahead, but I just want to get to the the assumptions I think that Bell was trying to take down. He said that a theory that explains you know, what EPR was proposing, it should agree with experimental predictions. It should agree with special relativity. And there should be simultaneous elements of reality. And that's, I think he's just kind of capturing what EPR had issues with that. Uh, the special relativity part, I, I kind of added that, but that's essentially what pe- most people call locality. Like you can't affect something at far distances instantaneously. Agreeing with special relativity means you, you need a time to propagate information to cause some sort of disturbance, some effect to lead to the results of a measurement based on another happening somewhere else. Yes. Right. So some, some form of energy can't travel faster than the speed of light. Right. So, you know, right. therefore if, you know, essentially if, uh, you and I are, uh, one light minute away, you know, that's the distance mm-hmm. light travels in a minute, then I can't know what you were doing until a light minute has passed or a minute has passed. Right. You know, I, I, yep. I it, takes time for something to travel to me mm-hmm. so yeah that's that's what most people talk about as the, the locality crux of the epr where they, they want to hold on they want to preserve that concept of locality which is essentially being in line with special relativity um the other one though is the the realism part and that's kind of their their definition of reality coming into play where the the position and momentum of an object should be known like th- there are positions and momenta of systems at the same time, like, right. Like a, a system just intuitively, it should have a position and a momentum at the same time. Quantum mechanics is the problem. It's not that the system doesn't actually have that uncertainty. It's that if we just don't know it. And that's, I think really what, uh, bell was tackling was that, that realism argument that the, the, the states have that the answers to certain questions are already determined and are able to be determined with 100% precision before measurement even comes in play and disturbs it. The locality thing is what a lot of people focus on, but I think it, the realism one was the, the real bell, what he was taking down with EPR. Okay, so that was EPR. Two systems colliding, position, momentum, uncertainty principle, 1935. Uh, nothing really happened. Uh, not, I shouldn't say nothing really happened. There was a huge debate about this, and um, Bohr uh, chimed in with a paper, and he titled it the exact same, and he even used the same improper oh, English in his title. <laughs> yeah, it's not a spelling error. It's like the grammar was weird. Uh, oh, okay. I don't know. Yeah, I, I should look up what the paper is. But anyway, he used the exact same title. And he published a paper. And if you if you, you don't even read Bohr, but you read people talking about Bohr, Bohr was notorious for just completely being unclear in his wording. And like, if you read it, you're like, everything's there. But man, does that not crystallize into like a coherent thought for me? Like, he's very wordy and just, you know, spirals and spirals of huge sentences that like eventually land on a point. But he was just tough to understand. But 
him and Einstein were the kind of two top guys that would go back and forth against against each other in like a respectful professional way. Like they didn't hate each other. They would just, you know, would have philosophical differences, namely the EPR paradox, or I keep calling it the paradox, the EPR argument. And then Bohr was saying, no, no, no. It's just what quantum mechanics is. Um, Merman has a talk on YouTube. That's fantastic. I highly recommend people watch it. Um, I think it's given at Berkeley and he, um, <laughs> he's so good at, at clarifying everything and he just puts in the simplest words, you know, the, you know, like Feynman was always good at this too. Like just using really plain English to just say something extremely complicated. Yeah. Yeah. He has quotes from Bohr and he just puts his own words in brackets to make it really clear. And he calls, um, instead of saying system one, system two, blah, blah, blah. He says, there's a thing and then there's the stuff that's left behind. And that's like supposed to be system one, system two. And he's, he's, um, so he takes Bohr's complicated sentence and he just replaces everything like systems and measurements and, you know, technical terms and just drops in the thing and <laughs> right. the stuff left behind and the testing. And like, he just like throws in really basic words that totally captures the main point of what Bohr was saying. Um, so I, I highly recommend watching Merman's talk. And if, if you want to know the uh, title of the paper is can quantum yeah. mechanical description of physical reality be considered complete? Yeah. So, you know, you could put the word uh, in there, yeah, yeah. Can, uh, quantum mechanical, <laughs> but you didn't have that. And then Bohr wrote the paper with the, uh, a counter paper with the exact same title, yeah. <laughs> which is really funny. <laughs> which would make sense for a Russian, but not for Bohr was what German, I think. I think or Bohr was Dutch. Danish. Yeah, Danish. That's it. Yeah. And Bohr's writing is very good. Like he's very well written and like his English is good. But anyway, um, it's just very long. <laughs> he needs an editor, I think. But anyway, uh, who am I to judge? I'm definitely in no position to. <laughs> but I think, but I, I also think um, Bohr answering it uh, adds to the confusion because of his, his long-winded reply. And, you know, people interpret what he wants, what he says in kind of like a Rorschach test, like you see what you want. It's, that's definitely a, a, an extreme position, but he was nebulous enough that people could interpret what they wanted from his reply. And uh, I think Bell, uh, in the Merman talk, he has a quote from Bell saying, Einstein was so far ahead of Bohr in his understanding of the problem. And Bohr just didn't really address the actual crux of the problem. Um, he, he, Bell really thought Einstein had an amazing point. And, and people look back and say like, oh, Bell proved Einstein wrong. And that wasn't what Bell thought he was doing. He just thought Einstein was bringing up a point that was important for people to consider and no one really took him seriously. Bohr just said, no, physics is right. Quantum mechanics is right because I said so, essentially, you know, because the math works, right. because because we're okay with this. And then Einstein's like, I'm not okay with this. Yeah, I mean, it was essentially uh, theory agrees with experiment. Right. We're fine, you know, and yep. Einstein wanted to say, well, I think there's something deeper than than that. Right. Have we thought about what this really means? Yeah. <laughs> That's basically what Einstein was saying. And Bell took him seriously and like went through a rigorous proof to show that uh, it's not that Einstein was wrong, but that quantum mechanics can exist without the the EPR definition of reality. So the the like what is reality is unanswered still. You know, that's basically what Bell showed. And Einstein was saying, hey, we got a problem with reality. 
And so Bell was kind of agreeing with him, but showing that like quantum mechanics can definitively say that there's a problem with reality, at least that definition of it. So, um, again, the Bohr wording has led to a lot of confusion, I think, with what the argument was. Um, and it kind of sat there from 1935 until about 1950, 1951. Bohm, B-O-H-M, was another physicist. Uh, I think he was American. I could be wrong on that. So. I'm pretty sure. I think so. He definitely was in the U.S. and the professor in the U.S. And uh, we have an episode coming out about his theory of quantum mechanics or his interpretation of it uh, soon. But he took the position, momentum, systems, colliding arguments from EPR. He's like, you know what? We can do this more simply if we consider a system that doesn't come in from distances away and then collide, interact, and then separate again. Like the, the EPR was a scattering argument which is pretty complicated. Bohm said, let's just consider something that starts at rest in some frame of reference, a system, and then it explodes essentially. And we have two fragments going off in opposite directions. And he used a hydrogen molecule and the, the H2 molecule separating somehow. And we have two hydrogen atoms now flying off in opposite directions. They wait, wait, started from rest. He, they, they, he used a what molecule was the first one? A hydrogen molecule. H2? Wait, wait. But, oh, okay. All right, all right. All right. There we go. Molecule was the word I was missing. <laughs> yeah. Atom. No. And so, yeah. So, he, he what he originally used, I thought it was an atom or a nucleus or, or you know, something, which is what most people talk about. But they, that's, again, a distillation from time. Um, but the original argument that Bohr, or sorry, Bohm used in his, um, I think it was a textbook, actually, was a, a hydrogen molecule gotcha. so two hydrogen atoms in a molecule um somehow disassociating who knows how they just spontaneously decide to separate that molecule started with uh zero angular momentum and zero momentum pick a frame and then just say it's in the singlet state so the spins of the hydrogen ooh, we got it in a spin i said spin for the first time um angular momentum is conserved from this separation if there was zero initial angular momentum, that means that the one that went to the left and the other hydrogen atom that went to the right have to have opposite angular momentums. We can talk about what it is, but it doesn't matter. Let's say let's say the one that went to the left had an angular momentum of five. That means the angular momentum of the one to the right had to have an, uh, a value of negative five so to add up back zero. to zero. Yeah, exactly. The key is that they're opposites. So that, that's that's kind of the 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 way we think about the epr paradox these days but again it wasn't what epr actually did so um i'm going to talk about spin and we're going to get into the merman version of this and the way most people talk about it also but we should just define spin real quick um in a simple way and just think about like the the spinning basketball or spinning top so if you think of particles spinning um and a direction that their spin might point and a value it might have the faster it spins, the bigger the angular momentum, the bigger the spin. And if it's rotating, say, clockwise, it would have a positive value. And if it's rotating counterclockwise, it would have a negative value. So the faster it spins, the bigger the number, but then the clockwise counterclockwise tells you which way it points. Does that make sense? It's the real quick and dirty way to explain spin. <laughs> yep. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's just a, it's a property of uh, particles that they have spin. Right. Yeah. And I mean, 
in in Bohm's version with the actual hydrogen atom, it's a little more complicated because there's it's a composite system already with particles. Like there's a proton and an electron in the hydrogen. Whatever, it doesn't really matter that yeah. much. And it, well, it gets reduced even further in history to just being a positron, positron and an electron pair. There you go. Exactly. So, so those are individual particles, and you don't need the the complications of a hydrogen atom. It's just a single particle going one way and a single particle going the other. And really, all you have to worry about is if one is what we call spin up, the other one has to be spin down because it has to add up to zero. That's that's how we talk about it these days. So again, that was Bohm in 1951, and so it's it's about every it's about every 15 years. 1935 EPR, 1951 ish, 50-51 is Bohm. 15 years later, 1964. I know that's not exactly 15. But we get Bell, his paper, publishing um, the mathematical proof, you could say, that quantum mechanics is, or basically he came up with a way to demonstrate experimentally and settle the EPR question. Is quantum mechanics the correct way to do this? Or is there a hidden variable that's existing along with these particles. Is there some sort of DNA inscribing the particles that we just don't know anything about? And that's really, he just starts from that assumption. Let's assume there is a hidden variable. Let's go through all the math to show what that would mean for our experiments. And then he ends up with an inequality. He says, if there are hidden variables, this inequality should hold. Measurements on this system or in this particular way should be greater than or equal to measurements in this particular way. Right. Yeah, it, I mean, it's it's pretty interesting that he like he what he came up with was a yeah like a a way to differentiate whether you know the quantum mechanics was right or or you know classical if you want to call it that the, the hidden variables idea but like like kind of in a way that just didn't seem like like I feel like it his his argument isn't particularly uh you know like it, it it's not a a crazy thing to have thought of i feel like mm-hmm. right. but he he just he just did it so i feel like it wasn't crazy to think of but the outcome was unexpected right and and it's kind of interesting in that regards that hey okay we can tell the difference between quantum mechanics and this hidden variable thing by by this inequality mhm and namely, namely, he gave a prescription for experiments to be run to actually test it. And that's, I think, the big, big benefit. You know, people always look for the ways to test theories experimentally. His paper was an outline of an experiment to run. So we can go into the details slightly. I don't want to get too bogged down with it because, again, it's the, the result is really the main important part. But it comes back to those spins we were talking about and one having to be up and the other having to be down. It gets a little weirder instead of just up and down, but you try and measure it at like a little bit of an angle. So there, there are ways to measure spin with magnets or some people talk about photons with polarizers. It doesn't really matter. There are ways to measure spin. But the key thing is with the spin of an electron or positron, it can only be plus, meaning up or negative, which is down in whatever direction you want to measure it. So if you set up a spin measuring device to measure something vertical, the spin vertical, 
which is the way most people talk about it, you'll get up or down. But you can rotate it to measure the spin in a horizontal direction, which what would that look like? It's kind of like if you spun a basketball with your fingertip pointing towards the wall instead of the ceiling. And however, a basketball could spin that way, but that's what that would mean measuring the spin in a horizontal direction. Is it spinning clockwise or counterclockwise with your finger pointing towards the wall parallel to the ground? Does that make sense? I know it doesn't make yeah. sense for a basketball, no, yeah, but yeah. for particles, it's like, it if you're does. in space, just picture yeah, it in yeah. space. Exactly. So you can set up a detector to measure is the spin up in this horizontal direction, which doesn't make sense in English, but that's how physicists talk about it. Um, or is it spin down in the horizontal direction? And the key thing is, again, we're all assuming conservation of angular momentum. You know, that's something no one talks about. What if what if conservation of angular momentum is wrong? And we just throw out the whole problem. And we just we <laughs> solved it. <laughs> just kidding. No one thinks that. That's absolutely not up for debate. Um, but the thing is, if you measure a horizontal direction and you get spin up for one of the particles, you're going to always get spin down for the other one because of conservation of angular momentum. Yeah, but... I think a really uh, uh, maybe crucial part to say too is that uh, just like position momentum, how we talked about earlier, you can't know either one exactly. Mm -hmm. You can't know both of these uh, spin ups. uh, You can't know the spin horizontally and the spin vertically exactly at the same time. That's right. That's that is a key part that the quantum mechanics says there is an inherent unknowability. If you measure if the particle to the left you measured in the up in the vertical direction and you got up, but you set your detector in the particle going to the right, so you you set that detector to measure the horizontal spin, you have no idea what the answer is going to be. It, it's unknowable. It's unknown. It's 50-50 shot up or down. It has no correlation to the vertical direction, which it, which goes back to the EPR uh, talking about position and momentum. There's There, there are fundamentally conflicting no abilities and the spin's just easier because it's it's a basically a yes no question but, yeah but um and that's why that's the one most people talk about because it is such a conceptually uh simple setup compared to epr yeah and and uh uh one one like interesting property about this at least i think in uh is that like if if you separate these two particles right and we said Okay, if I measure the spin vertically up, then we know that the spin is vertically down for you. Mm-hmm. But if I measure the spin horizontally up, we have there, there is no way to know what your spin uh, vertically up or down is. Right. It, it's you, you, when you, you just can't. It's fifty 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 shot. Right. Exactly. Um, let's touch upon one thing and then we'll get to the bell experiment and how this comes about. But the one thing I want to touch upon is the spooky actions at a distance, which, uh, talking about a particle going to left and say, you're going to measure it in the vertical direction. Which way does it spin point up or down? You don't know, but let's set the detector on the moon for the particle going to the left. Then you set the detector for the particle into the right, somewhere in outer space, could be in the Andromeda galaxy, doesn't matter. I'm, I'm just trying to make big distances. It doesn't matter how far they are. If you measure the one that went to the left spin up on the moon, and then you didn't even ask, but you just waited for the person on the Andromeda galaxy to measure it and come back, you know for certain 
that they measured it spin down if they measured in the vertical direction also. But quantum mechanics, the problem is quantum mechanics says the second that particle's on its path to that detector, it's a 50-50 shot. There's no way to know if it's going to be up or down. doesn't matter. Um, the left particle doesn't come into, into play yet. It's just if you only focus on the particle that went to the right, quantum mechanics says 50-50 shot up or down. But the second you run the experiment for the particle on the moon, the one that went to the left, and you measure up, the one on the right is always going to be down on the way to, to the Andromeda galaxy. Yeah, so I feel like this is this is a easier way to kind of uh, think about it. And I think that's why most people don't necessarily look at EPR the way EPR is discussed. Mm-hmm. But, you know, like if you think about what you just said, you know, the the... A simple conclusion is to say, oh, well, the one that you were measuring on the moon was up ahead of time and the one going to Andromeda was down ahead of time. Right. Like that that seems like an obvious statement to make is right. that, uh, you know, we didn't know what it was, but like the universe new or or the particle had it you know instilled in it it was always going to be up it had the property of upness mm-hmm. spin upness to it right yeah and that that's you know people just assume like let's let's not use particles and weird stuff but let's take um i think people talk about like gloves like a left and right handed glove you have a pair of gloves send one to the moon send one to andromeda galaxy but they're sealed in boxes you don't know which one's which if you open the box on the moon and it's the left-handed glove what's the one in Andromeda? It's the right. It's the right-handed glove, right? Like no like complicated quantum mechanics. The problem is we know for a fact that the glove was left-handed on the way to the moon the entire time. Like that's that's just a property of gloves. Like we have the physics of gloves and it's not like the glove is in some superposition. It's a classical object. The problem is when we get into particles, quantum mechanics describes the rules of their movements. And it's fundamentally unknown if it's an up or down particle until you measure it. Right. Well, in, in fact, it, it's, it, we, you know, we say it's not in an up or a down. Mm-hmm. It's in a superposition there you of go. those two. Yep. You know, it, it's, it's both at the same time. Right. Let's ring the superposition bell. It's the first time it's been said. But that, that is the crux of all of this. Quantum mechanics says these particles are in superposition states. It's a combination of both up and down. And this now gets at the Schrodinger's cat problem, which was a reply to the EPR and the Bohm paper saying, you guys are right. Something is really wrong with reality. Schrodinger saw it. And that's what the Schrodinger's cat is all about is saying, look, what is the difference between a glove and a particle? What is the difference between a nucleus decaying and a cat in a box? Like, where do we draw the line? Um, And this also gets into the word that I don't really want to use, which is consciousness, which does the cat have consciousness? Does it know it's dead or alive? Um, But anyway, that's that's where this leads to is um, those kinds of questions. But the, the spooky actions at a distance are measure up on the moon. Immediately, the one in Andromeda is going to be down. That's just from conservation of angular momentum and from collapsing of the wave function in quantum mechanics and that that does the measurement on the moon affect the measurement in andromeda you could say that but there's no way to really know i mean that there's no test except when bell starts doing his little experiment which is different than what i'm describing 
Yeah, yeah. So this is like, maybe now's a better way to phrase what I was saying earlier. This is the kind of, I think the cool thing that that Bell did is he (laughs) said, you know, I have a way to test whether it was superposition or whether it was that way ahead of time. Right. Right. So the Bell test is what we've been talking about is measure up on the moon, measure up measure vertical spin on the moon, measure vertical spin in Andromeda. If one's up, the other one's down. Uh, Zach, you brought up the measure up in the left particle measure, or sorry, measure measure vertical in the left particle, measure horizontal on the right particle. It's a 50-50 shot. There's no correlation. Bell's genius, I don't know. It's such a simple thing, but he like went to the logical extreme of what it means to do this. Measure vertical in the left particle, and then measure... A slightly different angle, but not horizontal, on the right particle. So set up yeah, the detector. In between. Yeah, at an arbitrary angle, somewhere between vertical and horizontal. Doesn't really matter where. If you do the experiment at particular angles and measure the results at different angles, you will get different answers. If quantum mechanics is the true "quote unquote" description of the world. Or if EPR's reality in that there was a hidden variable prescribed to those particles uh, on the way to the detector, and then the detector just made the measurement based on what those hidden variables are. That's it. That's that's literally the change that Bell made, and then worked out all the math to show that quantum mechanics says one thing, um, hidden variable says a different thing. Yeah, yeah. So like it. it- Bell Bell said, if you do this experiment a bunch of times, then statistically, quantum mechanics will produce this, you know, curve essentially. Mm-hmm. And if you do it a bunch of times, and it's that way ahead of time, you know, the hidden variables one, you'll produce this curve. Right. And and so then you can just test that. You can yep. do it. Do those experiments. Set your detectors at different angles and just measure the correlation between the one that went to the left and the one that went to the right, measuring the one at the right at different angles. And you're going to get results and you're going to say, did this inequality that Bell proves through the hidden variable assumption, is it held up? And you, you'll, in, in millions of runs and statistics collected over lots and lots of trials, you'll always come out with the understanding that hidden variables defeat the inequality. Like if hidden variable says um, um, answer is greater than or equal to five, you'll do a whole bunch of experiments and get four and three. You'll always get less than what it says, right? Mm-hmm. If, if the inequality says it has to be bigger than five to be true, you'll see fours and threes all the time. That's the shortest way to say what the inequality is. And when you violate the inequality, then you say it can't be hidden variables. And then when you do the quantum mechanics, you'll always get four and three right on the nose in theory. And then you do the experiment, same thing. It completely matches what the experiments show. Yeah. So, so that means that there's no hidden variables, local hidden variables, and uh, that with spooky, there's spooky action at a distance. Yep. So the 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 conclusion that Bell came to. In this sentence, he said, no physical theory of local hidden variables can ever reproduce the prediction of quantum mechanics. That's it. I mean, just done. Mic drop. It's done. That's Bell's theory. Yeah. And so, but... What does uh, it mean? That's the big... Yeah. I mean, it's easy to say. It's, you know, 20 words. 
before a period and then it's done. But what does it, what does it actually mean? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, he's essentially, you know, saying that, that you can, there is, there's different ways to think about this. Merman has a pretty good paper that kind of talks about, but there, there's no way you can inscribe a, uh, set of DNA to the particles ahead of time, mm-hmm. no matter how complicated you want to make that process, there's nothing you can do that'll then tell the detector what to measure later, essentially what it's going to measure later. You just can't do that. Right. Like, like the, the two are incompatible. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, so that that's Bell's theorem. It's it's the inequality, but more importantly, it's the violation of the inequality. And then his conclusion is that quantum mechanics and local hidden variables are oil and water. They can't they can't talk to each other. They can't produce the same results, same predictions. So is quantum mechanics correct or are local hidden variables correct? That's when you go to the experiments and then everything sides with quantum mechanics. Every experiment um, yeah, I, I, I've seen some papers that are like, we show that quantum mechanics wins, quote unquote, to, you know, 400 standard deviations or something ridiculous. <laughs> like there's no chance that hidden variables are at play here. Yeah. And th- these, uh, like every time I think, so I think like pretty much after Bell proposed this, people started testing it mm-hmm. pretty quickly. Right. Um, cause it, it's actually not terribly hard. Mm-mm to test this uh usually it's done with polarization and not spin but right. um but someone would test it and then they would so then there would be a response to the the paper that said okay quantum mechanics is right there'd be a response that said oh no you forgot about this mm-hmm. like you didn't think about this part right and then they would adjust the experiment and say oh no quantum mechanics is still right mm-hmm. and then someone else would say no, no, but you forgot about this part. Right. They would adjust the experiment and like, yeah. like, uh, I mean, this was still going on in like 2015. Well, they, even more recently than that. I mean, I think they literally last year did a big scientific um, test of it again using like the stuff that like, oh, you forgot about this is so ridiculous. And these, if you look them up, they're called Bell experiment loopholes. And it's, it's literally the wildest crackpot ideas you can come up with. Like, oh, you are you are biased as a human being like to influence the detector position or something like that right like that that's the kind of like extreme they would go to to test this stuff and they keep passing it with quantum mechanics coming out as the theory um, yeah i mean like i think the one that you're talking about right it involved uh setting a bunch of things up randomly like around the world by people playing a video game is that right yeah the, a lot of it comes down to they don't want so so we talked about um the person the particle on the left being measured in the vertical direction and then the particle on the right measured at some angle some different angle um the, what is that angle and how do you set it because if you set it ahead of time you can argue that there's some physical communication happening from the source and the particles know where the detector is you know as ridiculous as that sounds people want to rule that out so you have to get them far away you have to get that angle determined so if the, the particle going to the left and the particle going to the right say they separate at time t equals zero you set your detector angle after the particles separate. So it's not prescribed into those particles. There's no possible way because the angle is randomly selected. Then it comes up with, well, how do you know it's actually random? You can't use a number, random number generator because they're not random. They're programmed by humans. 
And so they, they tried to get um, random input like generators for these random numbers um, from people playing video games, like their key clicks. Like, I don't know, there's some algorithm that they use to, to get a number from the key clicks. And that determines what the angle is that the detector set at. And then people were like, that's still not enough. So what they did uh, most recently, I think last year uh, in 2018, maybe they set up a source of particles on a roof of a science building. And then they set up a detector across town on the roof of a different college's building. And they set up a, a the other detector, the, say the one that went to the right, on the roof of some bank. I think this was in Belgium or something like that. Or no, Vienna, Austria. And so this this it's particles, I think it's laser light flying across town, right? Like shooting between roofs and detectors. And the detector's angles are randomized by looking at the light from a star, that is 600 light years away. And so they're saying, okay, if there's some cosmic correlation between all this to convince us that quantum mechanics is correct, it must have happened 600 years ago because we're looking at the color of the starlight, the photon, like we're detecting one photon of starlight and saying, what color is it? What's the wavelength of that photon? And then that's determining our angle of our detector. Yeah, and if you, even if you like think about that even more, is it's not just like 600 years ago that star gave off you know this particular photon. Mm-hmm. It's also that 600 years ago that happened, and then that photon hit our atmosphere right. and went through Compton scattering mm-hmm. and other effects, you know, that would change its color, right. and you know, ran into all these particles on its way down, and then boom, like hits the detector. Yeah. Yeah. So there's so many random like <laughs> So yeah, sources. this this is the extremes we're going to. This is where we're at with like testing quantum mechanics validity is like that sort of extreme. Like quantum's passed every test possible and we're now at like okay, let's check starlight randomization to like set our detectors up and like check if this is valid. Um I don't know. It's funny. And, and uh, every time quantum mechanics comes out on top. Yeah. Uh so I wanted to uh add one thing tacked onto the end, but I didn't know if you wanted to talk about kind of uh, Merman's counting I do. version of this. Yeah, th- I just wanted two two uh, points, I guess. Um, so what we talked about of, of randomly selecting the angle between um, one detector and the other one, that's Bell's test. That's what he came up with for the experiment. Um, since then, in I think 1985, uh, David Merman, who we've mentioned a few times here, he came up with a paper that's much more simple to understand and it doesn't have to go into like an integral over density functions. And he says, instead of um, two detectors, use three detectors and all three detectors are 120 degrees apart. So it spins, you know, it's like a Mercedes symbol, right? They're equally spaced. uh, Do you know the name of this paper? Is it the moon one? I don't remember what the original paper is. Well, so there is a paper that I read. It's called, um, is the moon there when nobody looks yeah. reality and quantum theory, but that one only has two detectors okay. in it, but, uh, well, it's a, it's a good read, but okay. I, I think so, it's two detectors, but they each have three settings or something like yeah, that. Yeah. I think that's, yes, that is, it. that's the difference is instead of an arbitrary angle, it could be one of three angles, either vertical or 120 degrees or 240 degrees. And then another 120 gets you back to 360. So you start over. So it, it's two particles, two detectors, but only three settings possible. And that's that's his um, simplification of Bell's experiment. 
and that's in the mid 80s and that's the one if you watch like veritasium video um that's basically what he talks about um a lot of the pop science ones are using that explanation of of bell's theorem so that happened much later you know uh, bell's original paper in 1964 so 21 years later merman comes out with his um three position detector and there's two particles two detectors but only three positions and then each each detector can measure up or down that's the other place it gets really confusing because people talk about um alice and bob as the two detectors and then particle a and b or one and two but then position one two three up down sometimes you use colors for the three positions red green blue is light bulbs and is it on or off it gets it's it's not that complicated if you'd write it out but like it's a lot to keep track of in your head yeah so that's merman that's the simplification merman added in the 80s and again that's what most if you watch most videos i think that's usually what they're talking about yeah, is the three positions of two detectors we'll uh we'll post this paper. i think we can post this paper we'll post this paper on yeah, our i found it for free online it's it's yeah um yeah we'll it's link to it so open. you can read it um the next simplification though happened and this is more of an experimental simplification less so of a conceptual one it's it's a little bit again it's simpler in that you can just kind of count things but um it uses three particles and this is not a merman simplification um instead of two particles it uses three it's three guys names and it's usually called ghz experiments and that was around 1990 that they came up with this set up for an experiment that could be done and to to again it's it comes down to a bell type experiment but they're using three particles and uh that essentially simplifies things quite a bit and merman explains it very well with his you know there's the thing and there's the stuff left behind back to the epr discussion so the thing that you can measure is one of the three particles and the stuff left behind are the other two particles and it it comes down to straight counting like if if the there's three detectors three particles i think each detector has two positions i'm pretty sure that's true and that 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 detail i don't remember actually but anyway um it's it's like if you have a of your three detectors if it's a one two one for example so detector one is set to knob one detector two is set to knob two and detector three is set to knob one there's only two options for the detector knob settings but there's three detectors it's something like if it's one two one then you're always going to get an odd number of spin ups from the three particles being measured something like that like it's just like a combinatorics kind of simplification of it and you can you can use that for spin measurements and come up with a pretty simple experiment to test this stuff. And again, it's just straight counting. So that's that's why it's simpler. I don't see very many pop science videos or papers talking about it, but most of the experiments, as far as I understand these days, are using GHZ. And it's the Z is Zeilinger. I know that because he comes up in a lot of the experimental setups. Um, I forget the G and the H. I could look it up real fast, but yeah. But so you 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 kind of just like in the merman paper he just walks through okay like here we collected some data and he kind of gives you some you know a little bit of data and he says okay look at at you know this feature of the data and look at this feature of the data and the only way that these two features can be both true is if quantum mechanics if 
or actually, well, he says the only way that both of these could be true is if we don't have a hidden variable system. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, so uh, do we have anything else to say on? No, I, I'll just give you the three names. It's Greenberger, Horn, and Zeilinger. So Greenberger and Horn are the GH, part of GHZ experiments. But those are three particle experiments. Um, a couple of things I wanted to add. Okay, I got one thing to add, but go ahead. Okay, go ahead. Well, it's not super related, but you did say uh, hidden variables. The key part, and Bell says this explicitly, he says, no physical theory of local hidden variables can ever reproduce the predictions of quantum mechanics. That keyword local there, that comes back to the special relativity of being able to communicate information faster than the speed of light. Basically, it needs to be influenced some way in a, in a less than the speed of light sense. There are non-local hidden variable theories of quantum mechanics, and we'll talk about one of them soon in a later episode with pilot wave theory. That's an example of a non-local hidden variable theory that is consistent with quantum mechanics. So that keyword local is pretty important. Right. That's all I wanted to say. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was going to add, mention that too. Is that, so that's yeah, what leads to kind of maybe some Bohmian mechanic possibilities. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, also just to note two things. One is uh, along that regards is I just saw this really quick. And so I don't know how it works but as a reminder we're recording this after we recorded the bohmian mechanics episode yes um, that's true but i one of the things i saw uh, i think it was on a wikipedia page somewhere was um that there's actually a generalization of this and so it's not just hidden variables but um god what, what was it like counter contrafactual somethings uh, it, there's a more generalized form of mm. bell's theorem that is bigger than just hidden variables. And oh, uh, oh. some people apparently claim that that theory makes pilot wave theory impossible or that oh. generalization. Interesting. Okay. I haven't heard of that. Yeah. It was just like one quick snippet I read somewhere when I was doing this, but um, I thought that was kind of like, Oh, okay. Um, mm -hmm. The other thing I wanted to mention is, uh, you know, especially like, you know, we're talking about spins or polarizations and stuff. And if you've kind of been up on, you know, quantum news and stuff in the last, I don't know how many years, but I feel like it's been fairly popular in like at least the last 10 years, you've heard about entanglement. And mm -hmm. that's essentially kind of what we're describing, right? Is that these two particles are entangled when they leave from, you know, the, the center part, they go off in their different directions. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of like stuff going on with this, particularly I think in quantum computing, but I want to just point out that like, uh, um, Einstein and, uh, was it, is it Podolsky? Yeah. And, and Rosen, Rosen didn't know that that was a thing. Mm. Like when they wrote their paper, they weren't, that language didn't exist. It wasn't, it wasn't part of the. The, the fundamental teachings of quantum mechanics at yeah, the time. Yeah, exactly. Because like, I feel like if, if you've kind of approached this from, you know, uh, not from a historical angle, but from like the reverse angle, you go, okay, entanglement is a thing. And then you'd read about this and be like, wait, why is this a problem? We already have entanglement. So, uh, uh, yeah, j just like entanglement's pretty much accepted essentially because of Bell's theorem. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, 
I think entanglement really sets the stage for Bell experiments. Like that, that the, you can even do this stuff is based on entanglement. Um, and it comes back to the glove. Like the gloves are kind of it. You consider like left, right, like they're entangled in the sense that they, whatever one is, the other one has to be the opposite. Uh, again, the, the difference is the physics of gloves is well understood and there's, there's no superposition of glove, right? But particles, we have evidence that there is superposition of states of particles. What's the evidence? Uh, you can do the double slit experiment is one example where it's like, it kind of comes down to the same type of question. Now I'm opening up a big can of worms with double slit experiment, but I think it's fundamentally linked in that your the question you ask affects the answer you get, if that makes any sense. And I think it does. Like if you ask, what's your wavelength and send it through a double slit experiment, the only way that that answer gets resolved is if the particle went through both slits, mm -hmm. right? Like you have to analyze it using two slits simultaneously being uh, the particle going through both and interfering with itself, the wave function interfering and get your answer. But if you ask, did you go through the left slit? You'll get an answer that is a yes or no answer to that. But you did a different test where you said, what's your wavelength? And to answer that, you had to go through both of them and it gave you an answer for the wavelength. Um, yeah. I, I don't, I don't, it's a loose connection, but it's, it's a connection in my head between that and, and the, the fundamental definition of reality that like your question determines the answer. And Merman ends his talk with a quote, or I think it's the title of a paper. I forget the person's name, but um, the title of the paper was something like um, experiments that aren't done don't have results, something like that. Like you can't, you can't talk about experiments that would have happened. You can only talk about experiments that happen. So the, these like unanswered questions don't give you, there's no, you can't talk about the results of tests that aren't done, right. which is sometimes an argument people use to discredit like the entanglement or the bells theory theorem. Yeah. Now, now I'm rambling, but <laughs> that's, it's, it's a loose, a loose thread connected in my head to this stuff. Right. So, I mean, I guess the, the major takeaway is Bell devised a method to say essentially whether this quantum uncertainty was a real thing or, or mm -hmm. not. And we ran the test and it looks like it, it is right. I mean, as it stands, yep, spooky actions at a distance are what actually happens. Right. Sorry. And then people are like, oh, Einstein was wrong because he thought it wasn't happening. I'm like, well, no, he was just highlighting the fact that the quantum mechanics says it happens, but it breaks intuition. And so what's going on here? <laughs> so what is there anything that's real? Can we even talk about reality without having experiments? Are, are, does anything exist outside of us making measurements and what does making a measurement even mean so yeah 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 i mean i think that's there's, where we're stuck there's a whole metaphysics conversation that yes. can be held here right. you know that's right. still going on to this day with all sorts of you know input from different people right you know it, it, yep. what kind of you know out, outside of this episode i don't think we've talked about this but you know uh the whole uh, issue or Einstein had issue with the, like the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think in, in a later episode, we're going to talk about kind of a, a, you know, the Bohmian mechanics is a different kind of 
viewpoint of quantum mechanics. And there's, you know, many worlds theory of quantum mechanics. And there, there's kind of like different interpretations of this. And that's kind of where this is getting to. And that's not a place like that is well, you know, you know, people are still arguing about that to this day. Like, right. like really smart people. Right. Yeah, that was fun. I'm glad. I'm glad we got it. Hopefully, this recording exists after we stop recording. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, it should. Uh, and uh, you know, you could find again us at uh, thehyperfine dot com. Mm-hmm. The hyperfine T H E at front, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, <laughs> or uh, you can find us on Reddit at what's our subreddit? It's just r slash the hyperfine. Okay. Yeah. Again, and- again with the the. Yes, you must include the. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can find me. I, okay, I have a new Twitter handle. Ooh, look out. What is <laughs> it? Uh, <laughs> my friend came up with it. It's pretty awful, but okay. that's kind of why I like it. All right. It's Fizax, P H Y Z A K S. There it is. <laughs> uh, I'm at like tortilla. My last name is Padilla, Derek Padilla, like tortilla. Um, so you won't mispronounce it in the future and you can find me on Twitter. I, I don't know. I'm leaning towards Instagram more, but anywhere I'm around as like tortilla. All right. Well, see you, uh, next episode. Yeah. See you next time.